for the last four weeks we've been talking about. <clears throat> We're on this sermon series, United by Faith, being a reconciled church in a divided world. Um, how's it, how, how's it been? Fine, Nate says. Anybody else? Like, what's it been like for you? And we do this in our church, if you knew, by the way. We, we do take moments like this, just kind of, like, like what, what's, this, what's this series been like? As we've been talking about what it means to be a multi-ethnic reconciled church. What's, what's it been like? It's hard it's hard. Why? Tell me. Knowing that the society that I grew up in is painful for people on the other side. What Tommy said is knowing that our society is painful. Say so he grew up in is painful. Said so he, you can't see him. He, and this is important, this is important. He, a, a white young man, grew up in, yeah, wave, wave, okay. Uh, <laughs> it's painful for those on the other side. Anybody else? Yeah, yeah, so in case you can't see, uh, a, a, a woman of color saying that she appreciates me bringing this to the congregation. And I, I need to do that so that we, we know the perspectives and the specific perspectives from which this come from. And you're welcome, Jen. And thank you, Tommy, as well. One more person. It's eye-opening. Wow. Says... Jennifer's daughter, who is sitting next to her. Uh, why has it been eye-opening for you? How old are you again? Here's Jennifer's 14-year-old daughter saying that this is the world that I'm growing up in. And becoming aware of the dynamics that are at work. Um, last week, previously on United by Faith, being a reconciled church <laughs> in a divided world. Um, so some of you caught that. We watch way too much TV. Um, we talked about what does it mean? We talked about what does it mean to not live in Babel. The question I asked last week was, are you living in Babel? We looked at Genesis 11 as our primary text, but looked at the biblical trajectory and that God didn't intend for us to live in a safe, homogenous, walled up environment, but caused us to, or calls us to scatter, to be a blessing. And I asked that really hard question to all of us, all of us saying, as we look at our primary relationships and context of community, are we living in a safe, homogenous 
environment. And I ended it by saying that for many of us, maybe the three things that we can begin to do to move past and out of the safe, homogenous communities that we live in is three things. One is, for some of us, immersion. And I meant to say this last week, but I want to commend and encourage. I know that our church is very comfortable for some, but uncomfortable for others. Worship is not comfortable for you. A Korean guy who sounds angry and preaches for 50 minutes to an hour, I know is not comfortable for some of you. I know. Being in a community in which people do not act, look, talk like you is not comfortable. The question I asked is, what are the things that we can do to begin to immerse ourselves in an environment where we are the token person? If you're white, when is the last time you were the token white person in an environment? If you're Asian, when is the last time you were the only Asian in, let's say, a a primarily African-American or Hispanic church or community? I mean, immersion, getting ourselves in environments where we are forced to realize, like I'm in a safe, homogenous environment most of my days. And by the way, the reason why I don't say, and if you're black, is because for most black folks, The environment Monday through Saturday is one in which they are primarily the only person of color or one that is familiar and uncomfortable. Secondly, I said was this. I said uh, uh, we not only immerse in being, uh, feel comfortable being uncomfortable, also uh, what does it mean to pursue relationships? Take risk and pursue relationships with people unlike you. And third, I said as we pursue relationships, listen, listen. Nurture the discipline of listening, active listening. Tell me more. When somebody says something that you go, whoa, that's just not true. Tell me more. Whoa, that just, that just offends my sensibilities. Tell, I don't understand. What does it mean to put ourselves in their shoes? Walk a mile in their shoes. Now, guys, I just, I'm just going to say this and then I move on. Many of you come to this church. And truth be told, this Sunday morning for an hour and a half is the only time you're in a diverse environment. Come on, when I go to some of your parties, I'm going, this isn't new, and yet they're all from new. Like when I go to some of your social gatherings, like I'm like, what, what is happening here? Why do I go to a new community small gathering and there's like 15 Asian folk? I'm like, this ain't new community. I go to somebody's birthday party, there's like 20 white people. I'm like, this is a new community. Like what is happening that outside of this, we go out there and we whoop, self-congregate among people like us. What is that? What is that? Like, who's at your birthday parties? Who's here when you dedicate your child? Who's standing at your wedding party? Like, you, we, you, me, we could talk about what it means to be a part of these communities. But man, I tell you, what do our real, for real, for real, for real relationships look like Monday through Saturday? As I said last week, we're not being reconciled. I'm not being reconciled by, I'm not being reconciled with Carlton because I sit next to him. You know, what rec- you know what racial reconciliation is? Let's just, let's just jump right in, shall we? Racial reconciliation. Here's a definition that I came up with. It's not a perfect definition. As you could imagine, it's, it's your pastor, so it's a very wordy definition. 
So I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to like break it up into three parts, okay? So listen first, and then I'm going to have this like, listen. Racial reconciliation, because we're talking about what it means to be a reconciled community. Racial reconciliation happens when people of different races commit to deep, long-term, intentional relationships based on repentance, forgiveness, justice, and love in order to address, heal, and redeem the effects of personal, corporate, and systemic race-based sin. Like, what? Okay, so here is what racial, racial reconciliation. Well, here's what, here's what we're trying to do in our church, in case you're wondering. First part is this. It's when people of different races commit to deep, long-term, intentional relationships. People of different races commit to deep, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. A lot of people think, second portion is, based on repentance, forgiveness, justice, and love. And we're going to talk about some of that today. Based on. But there's another part. In order to address, heal, and redeem the effects of personal, corporate, and systemic race-based sin. That's what racial reconciliation is. That's a mouthful, ain't it? Do y'all know that's what we're signing up for when we say, I want to be a part of new community? Does that, by the way, sound like we sit next to each other on Sundays and we sing. I don't know why I did that because nobody does that in our church. But here's what we're talking about today. And I want to make it short. I'm going to try and make it short because I want God, the Holy Spirit, to do the application. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about one of the most critical and yet neglected and just, we just do a bad job of this in the church. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about the importance of repentance and forgiveness in a reconciled community. We're going to talk about the need. If we're going to do this thing for real, for real, the need for repentance. Repentance is when you wrong someone. It's what you do when you wrong someone. Forgiveness is what you do when somebody wrongs you. Can we just admit right now, Christians are terrible at this. Can I get an amen? Christians are terrible at this. We are terrible in the kingdom community at repenting, asking for forgiveness when we wrong someone, and forgiving when someone asks for forgiveness. Now, the good news is this, by the way. For those of you that are just joining us, what we're going to talk about today is irregardless of whether you attend a multi-ethnic church, whether you, you know, this is between husband and wife, parent and child, friend to friend. This is between anybody. So it's going to be applicable to you. But as we're going to see, it has particular ramifications for a community of people that wants to do this reconciliation thing in the gospel. What does it mean? And how do we do this repentance and forgiveness? As a constant ongoing thing to do relationship repair. Remember, the church is the vehicle through which the kingdom of God is communicated to the world. The watching world needs to see a group of people who know how to repent and forgive. Repent and forgive. Repent and forgive. The text we're going to look at is from Matthew chapter 5, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, which outlines what life looks like for the people of God in the kingdom. 
It's part of a teaching by Jesus on what does it look like to live as kingdom people in the kingdom of God. And the vast majority of the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, if you notice, like 90% of it is about relationships, relationships, relationships. How do you go about relationships? And in Matthew chapter 5, this is what Jesus says. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus says, if you're in church and you're worshiping, and all of a sudden you realize that somebody has something against you because of something you you did, the urgency of the matter is that you stop everything, you go out, and you make it right. And it's a ridiculous request. Do you know why? There's only one altar. It's in the city of Jerusalem. Most people don't live in the city of Jerusalem. Most people have to travel for days to get to the altar in Jerusalem. This ain't 10 minute drive from my house. Oh, I'm worshiping. I got something. I'm going to text. I'm sorry. (laughs) We're talking about somebody who is on a donkey or a mule or family. Travel for days and they're finally at Jerusalem. Finally at the altar. And they remember, oh, I did something. And that person, oh. Jesus says, stop. Make it right. He's saying the urgency of the matter is such that, listen, no matter how inconvenient, no matter how difficult, no matter how costly, no matter how much it may cost you, the urgency of the matter is that in the kingdom of God, we keep short accounts and we ask for forgiveness right away when we wrong somebody. How often do we stop and not do this because it's inconvenient, because it's difficult, because it's costly? If you are somebody here that know that you've done something wrong, it's, it's good for your soul to confess. It's not just good for them to hear you confess, but confession is good for you. You know what I've realized for 20-some years of being a pastor? I've realized that guilt... Even unacknowledged guilt has negative effect on the guilty. At some point, it begins to affect you. If I'm aware that somebody has done something against me because of something that I've done, I've offended them, I've hurt them, Jesus says, right away, don't hesitate, right away, right away, go to him. And make it right. That's repentance. Now, that's not the hard part. I'm going to look at more. The hard part is in Matthew 18, Jesus says something that at first just doesn't even make sense. Because Jesus in Matthew 18, we'll look at it in a little bit, guys. He says, if you have something against someone because of something they did, listen, if you have something against someone because of something they did, they offended you, they hurt you, Jesus says, what? He says, you go to them. Point out their fault and make it right. If you're paying attention right now, you go, what? They did something to me. I'm not going to them. They should come to me. 
And Jesus goes, no, no, no. See, that's how it works out in the world. You are not a part of the world. You are a part of a radical, upside down, make no sense, countercultural kingdom community. And check this out. In the kingdom community, when somebody has wronged you and you have something against them, he says, it's not their job to come to you. If you know it, it's your job to initiate relationship repair. Just sit on that for a second. Just sit on that for a second. Do you realize how radical counterculture this is? It doesn't matter, Jesus says, who's more to blame. It's always your responsibility in the kingdom to initiate relationship repair. Matthew 5, if you know that somebody has something against you because if you did, that's easier. You go ask right away. Ask for forgiveness. But in Matthew 18, if you have something against your brother because something they did, you go and you forgive. Don't wait for that person to come to you because they may never come. You always initiate relationship repair. In the upside down kingdom of God, he says it's always your move. But it's their fault. But they might be thinking the same thing about you. Did you hear what I just said? Think of how many relationships are absolutely falling apart, even in this church. Because you're going, it's his fault. And they're going, it's his fault. And nothing ever gets done. Husband and wife, it's his fault. It's her fault. Nothing ever gets done. Friend to friend, it's his fault. It's your fault. Nothing ever gets done. He says in the kingdom, it's your responsibility to initiate. Now, now there's a lot to unpack there, which I'll get to, because you've got all kinds of questions. Two things real quick. Word of caution. Now, there's some of us in there going, oh, 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 I love this sermon. I can't wait to tell him how I'm going to do relationship repair. I've been waiting for this sermon for like a year now. Thank you for giving me... What I found is that many of the relationships that are unraveling, they're happening on your side. You know what I mean by that? In other words, for many of the relations that are unraveling, if we would just forgive, if we would let go of the anger and bitterness, if we would recognize, hello anybody, it's our issue, that relationship repair is doable. So let me ask you something. Do you have people in your life that could say to you, hey man, hey man, that's not his issue, that's your issue. That's your pride, that's your ego, that's your insecurity, that's your hurt from past. It's not a... Do you have someone that could speak truth and love to you? Jesus, the word says what? Love covers over what? A multitude. You shouldn't have to go to every single person for every single thing. If it wasn't for our pride, our ego, our insecurity. So anyway, sitting there going, I can't wait to do relationship before you do. Have counselors around going, is it my issue? Is it my insecurity? Is it my ego? Secondly, and this is maybe the most important 
for someone in here who needs to forgive. And I can't spend a lot of time on this real quick. That is forgiveness is not for the benefit of the offender. It's for you. Forgiveness is what allows you and me, you guys, to cut the chain with the past and experience freedom. Freedom from the toxic emotions of anger and hate. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've sat across a coffee table and have someone talk about their family of origin. And at one point they'll come to realize that their unforgiveness towards their dad, towards their mom, towards their former spouse, whoever, that it's literally holding them. It's literally holding them in a prison of hate and bitterness because they haven't forgiven. And literally, they're unable to move on in their lives. Do you know what I'm talking about? And the amazing thing about forgiveness, the liberating truth about forgiveness, and I'll talk more about this towards the end, is that us forgiving them is not dependent on whether they ask for it. Us being able to forgive someone who offends us, wrongs us, is not dependent on whether they ask for it. Forgiving somebody depended on that person owning up to what they did, then you'd always be at their mercy. You'd be bound in the shackles of victimhood. But the truth, the liberating truth of forgiveness is, regardless of whether they ask for it, whether what they... We can forgive. That's why forgiving is a gift to the forgiver as much as it is to the perpetrator. It's your ability to say, I am moving on from my past. I'm going to forgive them. To not forgive is to choose a life of being held in a prison of hate. And your heart, my soul, was not created to be a container for hate. That toxic emotion will wear on your soul. Did I mention, by the way, that I felt really heavy this morning before I preached this? Did I mention that? I felt all morning, all morning, because I knew that some of the stuff I was going to talk about, it, 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 for some of us, it was going to feel like ripping the band-aid out of emotions and stuff from the past. What is repentance? What is repentance? And I'm going to be real quick about repentance and spend more time on forgiveness. What is repentance? Three things real quick. Repentance is taking full responsibility for what you've done with no excuses. What is repentance? Repentance is taking full responsibility for what you've done with no excuses. You ever hear this? Well, I did something, but you know you did something too. Well, I did some things, but you know, you, you kind of made me do it. I think I just said that two weeks ago to my wife. Repentance is even if the other person goaded into it, even if you're 20% responsible and they're 80% responsible, repentance is admitting your fault in it without excuses, simply saying, I'm sorry, period. Yeah. Repentance is us taking responsibility for our part in the rupture that's occurred in the relationships. We are incredibly gifted at justifying and making excuses. Are we not? 
Are we not? Why? It's in our DNA. Adam, what happened? She did it. Eve, what happened? The serpent did it. And the poor serpent, he had nobody to blame. It's in our DNA to go, it's not my fault. It's hers. It's his. You may- repentance. Biblical repentance. I'm sorry. Period. Repentance, secondly, is not a non-apology apology. Well, I'm sorry if I offended you. Uh, I, uh, I'm sorry if that hurt your feelings. That's not repentance. When you say, I'm sorry if, spouses, please listen. When you say, I'm sorry if, you're literally saying, you know, I'm sorry if I offended you, but you wouldn't be so offended if you weren't so small-minded. I'm sorry if I offended you, but if I offended you, it's because you know you're extra sensitive. And what you're doing is under the guise of repentance, it's like you're sticking a knife into them. True repentance doesn't go, I'm sorry if. It simply says, I'm sorry, without any excuses and any justification. Otherwise, it's a sham. Third, repentance is offering to make changes. Repentance always means change. Repentance always says, here's what I'm willing to do to change. Here's what I'm willing to do to make. Repentance even says, what do you suggest? What are some things in which I can grow? What are areas in which I can be different? What would you say? Repentance always means change. Now, I'm going to wade into some sensitive waters. Can I do that? Because I'm going to wade into this topic of corporate repentance. I'm going to wade into this topic of corporate repentance because I'm just going to say it. I don't think we will experience true racial healing in this country unless there is widespread corporate repentance for sins of racial injustice. Does that resonate with anybody? Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. This concept of corporate repentance is so foreign and offensive to the typical American, especially Christian. Because our response when anybody talks about corporate repentance is something along those lines. I wasn't there. I didn't have any slaves. And I have black friends. We see sin purely as individualistic. But what you and I have to realize is that sin isn't just individualistic in the Bible. It's also corporate. I'm just going to put up these passages because I don't have time to unpack them. But just to show you a glimpse. God continually holds the nation of Israel responsible for the sins of individuals and a few. Can you put that up, please? Nehemiah and Daniel actually had the audacity to repent for the sins of their ancestors. See, for some of us that come from corporate cultures, this resonates deep within because we know what it means to repent for the sins of corporate 
groups and not just individuals. But for some of us, reared and nurtured in an individualistic, hyper-individualistic Western culture, this thought, this idea is absolutely crazy. So humbly, humbly as your pastor, I want to say the following. Number one, for some of us, not even corporate repentance, for some of us, for us to move forward in this, we need to go before God and repent of our own personal sins of racist, bias, prejudice, attitudes that we have. Let's not pretend that that doesn't exist within some of us. But corporate repentance, corporate repentance, I'm going to put this up there. Corporate repentance is about expressing sorrow, regret, and grief for the historic and contemporary mistreatment of people of color and acknowledging that some have benefited from racism, although they themselves may not be racist. I'll say that again. Corporate repentance is about expressing sorrow, regret, and grief for the historic and contemporary mistreatment of people of color and acknowledging that some have benefited from racism, although they themselves may not be racist. Does this resonate with anybody? See, let me give you an example. For some of us, A teacher, if you're a teacher in school, a teacher can apologize to a student who feels mistreated by the school, not because the teacher participated in the harm. The teacher actively is fighting against it. But because the teacher wants to communicate to the student both that you were wronged and also that I regret that this happened to you. A teacher that could actively fight For justice for that student could also repent and say, I'm sorry. So, what would it mean in this country if, what would it mean in this country if more Christians, instead of saying, I wasn't there, I didn't do those things, I don't have racist attitudes, instead said, I admit that racism was wrong, I admit that racism was evil, I am so sorry that an entire system built on elevating certain people has done so much harm and destruction to your community. I am grieved that people like me have benefited from the system. And I seek to understand more so that I could end the pain of racism. What would happen to this country if more of us pray that prayer? What would happen if people repented for being passive? If people repented for not caring more? If people repented for playing it safe? And without any ifs, without buts, we said, what can we do to change ourselves and our society at large so we could end this evil of racism? Corporate repentance. Corporate repentance. Believe it or not, That's the easy part. Because the harder part is the second half of what it requires for reconciliation. That is, if you're someone who's been wronged and hurt, he says, forgive. Matthew 18, 15. 
If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. And what follows, which we don't have time for, is Jesus' most extensive teaching on forgiveness as he talks about the parable of the unforgiving servant or the unforgiving debtor. And in it, Jesus says, forgiveness entails three things. One, here's the definition of forgiveness. is giving up the right to see repayment. Forgiveness is giving up the right to see repayment. When somebody wrongs you, what do we say to them? You say it. You owe me. English is such an interesting language. You owe me an apology. Why do we say that when somebody wrongs us? You owe me an apology. When somebody hurts you, when somebody wrongs you, when somebody takes credit for your ideas, when somebody slashes you emotionally, when somebody wrongs you, there's a sense, all of us know, that something was taken from me. There's a sense of loss. Sometimes it's loss of face, a loss of reputation, a loss of opportunity. For some of us, loss of our childhood. Maybe loss of marriage that we long for. When somebody wrongs us, there creates a sense that something is owed. There is a sense of debt. And we say to that person, you are liable to me. And the most natural way that we deal when somebody wrongs us is what? We want to make them pay. We want to make them pay. You're unhappy, you what? To make them unhappy. You're in pain, you don't cause pain. This is the reason why hurt people, what? Hurt people. When you're hurt, the most natural thing you want to do is I'm going to hurt you back. And some of us have these imaginary conversations in our minds with the person who wronged us. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Smile and nod if you do. We have these imaginary conversations with the person who wronged us. We walk around all day going, oh. And in this scenario, we confront, we conf- you better talk about it. I'm going to talk about it. You, you confront that person. And you have built the perfect case. You built the perfect case in your mind. You're going, how do you know that, Peter? Because I can read your mind. You built the perfect case in your mind. And by the way, when I do this with this imaginary conversation, there's not just me and him. It's like an entire room full of people just observing. And in that room, all of a sudden, I turn into like Johnny Cochran or something, you know? I'm like, if it don't fit, you must acquit. Like, I built up the most perfect case for those of you that are like, what does that mean? Don't worry about it. I just totally dated myself. We have these imaginary conversations. And what do we do in the imaginary conversations? We what? Make the perfect argument. That person is devastated by our argument. And they beg for forgiveness. And we go, all right, I'll forgive you. Does that ever happen? Of course not. Do you know why? Do you know why that never happens? Because the way we deal with hurt is we make them pay. The way we deal with our hurt is I'm going to hurt you. You hurt my reputation. I'm going to hurt your reputation. The other way for some of us, oh, man. The other way for some of us. And, and you go, how do you know this, Peter? Because I do this. We go, I'm going to take the high, high moral ground. I'm not going to hurt you back. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to seriously cherish it. 
when something bad happens to you. I'm going to seriously, I'm going to seriously cherish. So when something bad happens to you, I go, oh, yes. How many of us are sitting here right now? I'm going, I've taken the high moral ground, but that person who wronged you and offended you, you wish for their ill. You wish for their harm. You wish for pain. You're not doing anything to them, but you're not forgiving them because you're not giving up the right to see repayment. Forgiving says, I forgo. The right to see repayment in front of you, in front of others, in my own heart. Secondly, the practice of forgiveness. The practice of forgiveness. Some of the things that really trip people up when it comes to forgiveness is that they think forgiving somebody is condoning them for what they've done. Two totally different things. I can't forgive Peter because I forgive. They're going to think that I'm condoning what they did was okay. Condoning somebody and something that they've done is a completely different thing for forgiveness. To commit to living free from bitter hatred to living free, setting them free from the depths of your heart. To forgive is a totally different thing from condoning them. But here's the thing. Even though I'm one pants part of human to feel deep anger and deep hatred for somebody who wrongs you. By the way, the reason why you feel so much hate for certain people is because there's depth of love there. Hey. <laughs> the reason why the reason why some of our hatred and anger goes so deep for some people is because there's direct correlation to depth of love. You don't have that kind of strong feeling for people you don't care about. Deeper the love, the deeper the hurt. But here's the thing about forgiveness. This is going to be hard. Forgiveness, though, is granted before it's felt. You have to choose to forgive. We are sitting here, some of us. It's been 10 years. Why haven't you forgiven? Because I'm waiting until I feel like forgiving him. I'm waiting until I no longer feel angry. And the Bible says, you choose to forgive. Then the anger will recede. And you will feel forgiveness. This teaching is found throughout scripture. Jesus is one example. Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. If you're standing praying and you realize something that you need to forgive, he says, as you're standing right there, forgive them. How in the world would Jesus be able to say that unless it's an act of the will where we choose to forgive 
so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Forgiving someone who's hurt us, forgiving someone who's offended us, forgiving someone who has wronged us is a choice that allows the anger to recede, enables us to feel forgiveness. To which some of us go, that would hurt. It would. It's agony. It's absolute agony to withhold making them pay. For some people, they say it feels like a kind of death, and it is. But here's the good news. You ready? It's a death that leads to a resurrection. We're simply just following Jesus in his Christ pattern of death, resurrection. When we follow his footsteps to die, to revenge, repayment. And we come out on the other side, transformed. We could sing all the right songs about God's forgiveness, about God's love. It's one thing to sing the songs and intellectually assent. It's another thing when somebody wrongs you to follow in his footsteps of death to self-forgiveness so that I might rise again to new life. Some of us will die a slow death over the course of our entire lives from bitterness, anger, hatred, and toxic emotions. Or you could choose to forgive. Third, the prerequisite for forgiveness. And this is the hardest of them all. Prerequisite for forgiveness. And I'm just going to quote one of my favorite authors Miroslav Volf in his book, Exclusion Embrace, that I've quoted a number of times. In this perfect quote, he talks about what forgiveness requires. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans. And I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Miroslav Vol says there's two reasons why we do not and we cannot forgive unless we go past these two things, we will not be able to forgive and be reconciled. First, he says, I exclude the enemy from the community of humans. That is, if you want to forgive somebody, you can't dehumanize them. You can't dehumanize them. You have to see them as human. To which most of us are going, what are you talking about? Dehumanize. That's terrible language. Do you know how we dehumanize people that we don't want to forgive? You ever had a cartoon drawing of you at like an amusement park? They draw on me and they make these big old ears. that big ears. And they accentuate this funky little characteristic of mine. And of course you look at it and go, that's not me. You know what we do to dehumanize people we don't want to forgive? We take the one thing they did and we go, that's all you are. Why can't you forgive her? She lied to me. She's just a liar. That's all she is. It's just a liar. All she is. It's just a liar. We've reduced her to the lie. Why can't you? She betrayed me. She betrayed me. Why can't you? Because all she is is someone who betrayed. That's all she is. We just reduced her to that one thing to which when somebody goes, do you ever lie? Well, yeah. Well, are you just 
No, no, I'm not just, I'm a human being. I'm multifaceted. I'm complex. I have many layers. You need to, why do we do that? The way that we hold someone from forgiving them is we literally say, that's all you are. We have reduced them to that one thing. You're just a liar. You're just the one who divorced me. You're just my dad who left me. You're just my mom who left my dad. That's all you are. But when we dehumanize other people, something happens to our own humanity. When they become less human, we become less human. For this sermon series, I've been reading a lot, lot of writings from Desmond Tutu, Archbishop, South Africa. And I've been particularly drawn to his work on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It's a commission that was set up to deal with post-apartheid. Can you imagine what that country has gone through? And we have a sister here, actually, who grew up in South Africa. And I'd love to talk to her more about this. Desmond Tutu, in his book, There's No Future Without Forgiveness, writes about, and I want to make sure I get this right, writes about a young man named Malusi, who was a young anti-apartheid activist. And he's constantly under surveillance because of his work to bring about justice. And he's tortured. He's put in detention centers. And Desmond Tutu interviews him, interviews this young man named Malusi, and says, what got you through those detention centers when you were being beaten and tortured and your life and your family's life was being threatened? And this is what he says. I'm going to put this quote up there. He says, these are God's children. And yet they're behaving like animals. They need us to help them recover the humanity they've lost. Here's a young black South African whose entire family is being tortured, going through detention centers. And he says, here's what got me through is knowing That they need us to help them recover the humanity they lost. And I'm going to quote a section here. Desmond Tutu goes on and says, All South Africans were less than whole because of apartheid. Blacks suffered years of cruelty and oppression, while whites became more uncaring, less compassionate, less humane, and therefore less human. Yet during these years of suffering and inequality, each of our humanity was still tied to that of others, white or black, friend or enemy. For our own dignity can only be measured in the way we treat others. And then I want to put the last quote up there. He says, for our nation to heal and become more human place, we had to embrace our enemies as well as our friends. This was a must for true healing. This country we live in has zero chance of true reconciliation if we do not see each other as human and not our enemy. The second part, though, that Miroslav Vol says. In order for us to forgive is, he says, I exclude myself from the community centers. We have to identify with them. In order for us to forgive, 
Not only do we have to stop dehumanizing them, he says we have to identify with them. In other words, we all know what it's like here. If you are saying to yourself, you've been offended, and you say to yourself, I would never do that. I'm nothing like you. You can't forgive him. We know even experientially, it's awfully hard to stay angry at somebody when they've done something that you do all the time. It's really hard to stay angry at somebody and not forgive when they're doing something that you do all the time. For us to stay angry and unforgiving, we say to ourselves, I would never do what you did. I am nothing like you. And Miroslav Vol says, in order for re- reconciliation and forgiveness, we have to deliberately do the difficult, difficult work of identifying with them and seeing how much we have in common. Our heart will want to say, and you know what this is like, I know what this is like. We want to say, I am nothing like you. I would never do what you did. But in order for there to be forgiveness, Zavino Savo says, we have to identify with our perpetrators and say, I might not do the exact same thing you did, but I'm capable. I am not all that different I just want to say here I don't know about you but for me I don't want someone to look at me just for what thing that I did and say you're just a sum total of that do you does anybody in here want to say that mistake that I made that's all that you are does any one of us in here say that I'm okay with that That's all that I am. And if not, how do we do that to others? I need to end. Repentance and forgiveness. You have to constantly be doing these at all times because the goal, Jesus says, is, here it is, you guys. The goal is reconciliation. Repentance and forgiveness because Jesus says the ultimate goal is reconciliation. Matthew 5, 24, I bring you back to that. First, Jesus says, and go and be reconciled. The goal, the goal. You sat here listening for the last 45 minutes. The goal, goal, goal of repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. The goal is that there would be reconciliation. That that person would be able to come to see the truth. That person would be able to repent of what they've done. And that there would be reconciliation and relationship that are made. Right? One quick caveat before I finish. And that is this. Romans 12 verse 17 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil, verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Why is that important? Because the book of Proverbs says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly. There are some people, no matter how hard we try, we might not be able to reconcile with them. There are some people... You may be trying to reconcile with, but that person will actually use our desire for reconciliation to inflict more harm. It's never good to let, make it easy for somebody to sin against you. Can I get an amen? I needed to say that. I needed to say that because if you're sitting here going, but Peter, there is absolutely no way that I could. I'm just saying, Jesus says, if at all possible, if at all possible, go and reconcile. It may not be. 
And it requires wisdom on when to reconcile, when to draw. But Jesus is the goal, though, is go and be reconciled. But here's the question. Why are you going to them? Why are you going to them to be reconciled? For truth's sake? Or for your ego's sake? Why are you going to them? To get them to see the truth. So they would repent and their relationship reconciled? Or so you could inflict pain and vengeance? Why are you going to them? Why am I going to them? Is it for justice sake? Is it for ego's sake? See the words, show him his fault, doesn't mean declare judgment. I'm going to go and I'm going to show him your fault. Declare judgment. It literally means to persuade, to persuade them. And the reason why that's important is this. The reason why there isn't more true reconciliation in this country and all over the world is this. If you want justice and nothing but justice, all we get is injustice. If you want justice and nothing but justice, all we're going to get is injustice. If you want true justice, there has to be love. There has to be love. If all we want is justice, And there's no love in our hearts. And when we go, I want justice, what we merely mean is, you kill 5,000 of ours, we're going to kill 50,000 of yours. And world history is filled with bloodshed, violence, and retribution, and evil wins. This is so important. I've heard people say there can't be true reconciliation without justice. And I completely agree with that. And my question to them is, do you want justice and nothing but justice? Or is there love? Story of Jonah is very instructive to me. Because Jonah is called by God to go and preach repentance of the most ruthless, violent superpower of the day. In 20 years, the nation of Israel will be invaded by the Assyrians who will kill, murder, rape, and torture their people. And God's mission to Jonah is, Jonah, I want you to go to those very same people and preach repentance so they will come to know my love and turn from their ways. And in the story of Jonah, God says, there's two ways that you and I do not, do not pursue in order to be reconcilers. And they are the vengeance seeker and the avoidance seeker. What do I mean? When somebody wrongs you, the one thing that God does not allow is vengeance. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. One thing that God does not allow is vengeance. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. But the other thing that God doesn't allow is avoidance. Please listen. I'm almost done. Please listen. What God also doesn't allow is avoidance. And the avoidance seeker goes, I'm going to hate you on the inside and say nothing on the outside. I'm going to hate you on the inside and I'm going to say absolutely nothing on the outside. And it's rampant in the church. I'm going to hate you on the inside. I'm going to be bitter and I'm going to be angry. But I'm going to, I'm going to hold it inside. I'm not going to say anything outside. And Jesus says, you don't have that option. He says, go. Show him his fault. Get him to see the truth. 
You and I don't have the option to go, I'm just going to avoid it. I'm just not going to deal with it. He says, no, for truth's sake, for justice's sake, for the world and the people that that person will have to live with for sake. You need to open your mouth, speak truth, get that person to see. Whether you're the vengeance seeker or the avoidance seeker, on the surface they look the same. But deep down inside, the avoidance seeker is saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to hold this against you and not say anything else. And they look like they're more for truth. They look like they're more for justice. They look like they care more about the world, but they don't. There's no difference between the vengeance seeker and the avoidance seeker because at the end of the day, here's what they're doing. They're saying, you, I'm going to exclude you from my community. I won't have nothing to do with you. And out goes reconciliation. Can I ask you something? Where are you this morning? Where are you this morning? God says, forgive. See, see, you can come on up. Forgiveness is the process of dealing with the hate, dealing with the anger. Why? Everybody, look up here. Forgiveness, God says, as you deal with the hate, you deal with the anger before you go to be reconciled. Forgiveness is dealing with the hate, is dealing with the anger before you go and deal with the wrongdoer. Forgive, then go and win them over. Forgive, go, get them to see the truth. Forgive, then get them to see what's right. Get them to do what's right. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you don't demand that they change. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you don't work to right all the wrongs. But forgiveness, forgiveness, true, genuine forgiveness is what enables true justice to happen. So if you're sitting here this morning going, I want justice and nothing but justice, you can't get true justice. True justice is possible. True righting wrongs is possible when we have done the most difficult work of forgiving than going and saying to the wrongdoer, I need you to see truth. Where do we have the power to do this? It's remembering our own forgiveness. It's remembering our own forgiveness. It's getting the gospel deep into our souls in a way that it drains the hate, it drains the anger, it drains the bitterness. It's getting the gospel deep into our soul. And church family, here's what the gospel says. The gospel says that the perfect son of God initiates relationship repair by coming down to earth. And as he is hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of humanity, he cries out, tetelestai, which in Greek is translated in English Bibles, it is finished. But literally in Greek, it means it is paid. What's paid? 
your debt, my debt. We don't owe you a penny. You don't owe me a penny. I've paid it all. See, I know that some of you were offended when I said we need to do the hard work of identifying with the wrongdoer in order to forgive. But you realize what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, Christ became sin so that in him we might be reconciled to God. How's that for identification? He becomes sin. He not only takes our place, but he becomes sin so that we might be reconciled to God And if a perfect God in Christ could forgive imperfect sinners, why do imperfect sinners have such a hard time forgiving other imperfect sinners? I'm foolish enough to believe that a united church a community that's united by faith in Christ could be a force for an agent of healing in this country. But that doesn't start out there first, you guys. It starts in here. It starts in here. It starts in here. It starts with us maybe individually saying, I know I have wronged someone. And I need to go ask for their forgiveness. It starts maybe with some of us. Maybe, man, if you have the boldness to do this today, if you have the boldness, maybe for some of us, it means we engage in corporate repentance. We come together to God and say, I might not have been individually, personally responsible, but God, this is what I know to be true. Maybe you might be bold enough and courageous enough to confess that and repent that today. And for some of us, you are called to be an agent for justice and reconciliation. But unless we do the deep internal work of forgiving, there is no way that we will pursue true justice. It's going to be vengeance or avoidance and nothing Church, am I crazy for believing that this is possible? Talk to me here. Do you believe it? (laughs) Communion today to me is just maybe more sobering than others because what you get when Jesus embraces the enemy, what you get when Jesus Christ embraces the enemy is the cross. The cross is the example of Christ embracing the other, the enemy, the excluded, and in his shed blood and broken body, inviting them in. So do you realize what it means when the Bible says his body was broken for you and you and I take his broken body? Do you know what that means? That means that as we partake in what he's done for us and how he's embraced us and received us and included us, we look around and go, who are the people in my life that I've excluded? I haven't forgiven. And I need to embrace, I need to love. And just as we take the shed blood of Jesus, we recognize that his blood is shed 
so that those who are excluded by sin from a holy, righteous God can be brought into the throne room. And as we dip the bread in the blood, by that very act, as we receive his forgiveness, receive his invitation into the household of God, we also make room in our hearts and in our lives for others who may be excluded. And today, more than any other Sunday, we take the words of Jesus seriously, and that is, don't come up and take communion if there is a relationship that needs to be made right. Do that first. That means you might have to sit today and not partake. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. So, Father, as we come and as we Say yes to your invitation. Repentance, forgiveness. Repentance, forgiveness. Repentance, forgiveness. forgiveness.